Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. chapter 18 in Revelation. That's where I'm going to start, so just stay there in your Bibles. Uh, And then we're going to actually hit chapter 16 and chapter 15. Uh, But don't worry, I only have three pages of notes, so we should be just fine. Um, It's funny because Chris actually ended up going backwards last week, too. He was started in 17 and went to 13. And I didn't know he was going to do that. Uh, A couple weeks ago, the Lord kind of revealed to me that I should go backwards, too. So that's okay. Um, We're not doing it necessarily because that's the order the chapters happen in. We are doing it because that's what the Lord has for us this morning. Okay. And what you're going to see today is what we heard was sort of the aftermath of the destruction of Babylon. And I put that in quotes because it's not talking about the city of Babylon. That city was destroyed a long, long time ago. Okay, it's talk, that, that's a symbolic reference, right? We heard about the prostitute last week and the mark and the beast and all of this stuff. Babylon's personified as a woman, right, in this chapter. So all of that symbolic salad is, is referring to everyone and everything, human and demonic spiritual beings in, in opposition to Yahweh. Okay, so we're just we're not going to spend an hour diving into all the nitty gritty details of that. It's just that's all the everything against Yahweh. Okay, and and then we'll see in chapter sixteen the seven bold judgments. Right, because because when we we just in the West especially we don't like to talk about the judgmental part of God and the destructive part of God. And, and so with, but, but I promise we're going to get to chapter 15, and it's going to be all right in the end. And so before we just jump into chapter 18, I want just want, and, and we, as we start to wrestle with this, like, judgment-y stuff, um, I want to try to level set us just a little bit, okay? So if I were to ask you, to find anyone on planet Earth who disagrees with this point, do you think you could do it? Okay. Think about this. Does, anyone, does everyone agree that the righteous should be blessed? Like, do you think you could find anyone on Earth, no matter what their background is, no matter where they're from, no matter what religion, anyone on Earth would say, yes, the righteous should be blessed? You can, you can respond. It's okay. Holy, holy cow, guys. We haven't even gotten to the judgments yet. <laughs> this is the easy part. Okay. Now, do you think everyone agrees that the evil should be judged? Yes. yes. Okay. Here's where the agreements end, right? Because everyone disagrees about who is righteous and who is evil. But the, the entire Bible, especially Revelation, is exceedingly clear about who is righteous and who is evil. Right? Anyone in opposition to Yahweh will be judged, and anyone loyal to Yahweh will not just 
survive the judgments. They will actually reign with him forever. Think about the, the huge disparity between those two results. Okay? So we're going to go, we're going to start in Revelation 18. I'm going to preach a little bit differently. Uh, this time I've got my wonderful ESV archaeology study Bible with me. We get a lot of questions about the resources that we use. Um, this is the best Bible that has ever been printed. It just, it just is. Okay? It's not because I think ESV is the best translation. It's all the other stuff that's in here. And so I'm just going to kind of read through a few verses. Chapter 18 is really long. All right, Wild Bill already covered all of it. Um, we're just going to kind of, there's a few verses that jumped out to me that I think are for us today. So I'm just going to kind of read through 18 and 16 and 15, and every once in a while I'll stop and preach a little bit. Is that going to work for you guys? Yes. Okay, so uh, verse 1, 18 verse 1. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. Pop quiz. We've been in Revelation a long time. Who is this? Ah, see, okay, now, you are learning. I didn't think you guys were going to laugh at that. Uh, I was trying to encourage you. I really am. Because at the, start of this, at the start of this series, like it's like, oh, no, Revelation. It's like, listen, you are capable of understanding this. Every single person in this room, every person hearing my voice on the podcast, you are capable of understanding this, okay? And you're learning it. You're getting better at it, and you should be encouraged by that. Okay. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Okay, I'm going to preach for a little bit. Um, so Jesus is, as he's done many times, is very simply calling out that which is demonic as demonic. Saying, he's just saying, that right there, that's demonic. Okay? Now, if you ever needed a verse to justify you doing the same thing, it's right here. Okay? It's right there. If Jesus does it, we should at least consider doing it. <laughs> right? He's God. We are not. So there are certain things that he does that we don't do. Okay? This is one of those things I'm going to say we should consider doing. So, and, and, and here's why. Once you identify something as demonic, you now are forcing yourself to make a decision. And there are two correct decisions. Okay? One is... You can avoid the demonic, and that is very appropriate sometimes. You see something as demonic in your spirit. You know that it's demonic. You identify it as such, and then you say, you know what? I just, I'm going to avoid that, okay? The other option, if you're not going to avoid, you have to attack, okay? If you do not avoid or attack, what you default to then is protecting the demonic and paving a way for it to infiltrate your heart, the hearts of your family, the hearts of this church, the hearts of the city, the hearts of the, church, the, the world as a whole. Okay? So, verse 2, the point of verse 2. If it's demonic, we call it out as demonic. The church needs to stand up and proclaim truth right now, all of the truth, 
right now. And sometimes that's going to look like us calling something demonic, actually saying that out loud, that's demonic, and then we choose to avoid it or attack it because if we don't, we will protect and pave a way for it. That's just verse 2. Verse 3, for all the nations have, the, have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So those that take the mark of the beast, Chris covered that in depth last week. They become rich because they chose to use the system of the beast, the false prophet, the prostitute, that dark trinity okay and what what we saw as wild bill read through all this the destruction i gotta stop that. <laughs> it's just gonna come out every time oh man the destruction of the economic system of the dark trinity and there is symbolism there but it's it's literal too okay and then in 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 verse four I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and lest you share in her plagues, right? So this theme of sexual immorality is, is central all throughout Revelation from beginning to end. And there are times when it's literally referring to sexual immorality. Uh, but most of the time, and this, is, and this is one of those times where it's both, I would say, because sexual immorality is a form of disloyalty to Yahweh. Uh, but broadly speaking, it's more broadly referring to any type of disloyalty to Yahweh, okay? And so, so that's, that's what we're seeing there in, in, in 3 and 4. And, and what's happening is God's calling to his people in verse 4, right? Come out of her, my people, right? Come out of her. You don't need to embrace sexual immorality. You don't need to embrace some other idol, some other God, okay? I want you to be a part of my family. Okay, there's still time for you to join my family. If you don't join my family, you will be caught up in the destruction of this system. Verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her all a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. There are limits to glorifying yourself. Think about how extreme that case of pride is. I sit as queen. No mourning I shall ever see. She, she bestowed on herself authority and influence. But what we see is that when you choose to glorify yourself and manufacture your own authority, that will lead to destruction and ruin. There are limits when you glorify yourself because it leads to destruction and ruin. There are no limits when you allow God to glorify you. Right? Because you're given, the, the letters tell us, to the one who conquers, to the one who endures and believing loyalty to me forever, I will give you what? A throne, a robe, a crown. That sounds a lot like a ruler with authority. And think about it this way. You know, you know deep down in your heart that manufactured authority doesn't mean very much. You might get that dopamine rush 
from having influence, having authority, being the boss, so to speak. But you know it's fake. Isn't it more meaningful when someone, not, I'm not just talking about God, I'm talking about anyone in your life. When someone of authority comes to you and says, hey, I've got a job for you. Doesn't that make your heart just swell with pride in a good way? Because there's something about that inside of you that was put inside of you by the creator that longs for purpose. And that purpose cannot come from within you. It has to come from something way beyond you. And when, you're, and when he says, when someone says, hey, I've got a job for you, they're not saying, hey, serve me. What they're saying is, I need you to go lead that thing. I need you to take ownership of that thing. Think about it from the perspective of your kids, okay? What is more meaningful, parents? When the child obeys you after you ask for obedience 10 times? Or when the child obeys you because they chose to obey you? Right? There are limits when you glorify yourself and when you manage authority and influence. There are limits. There are no limits when God glorifies you. As we keep reading through that passage, we see the aftermath of this destruction of the system, and you can see the merchants and the kings weeping. Because there's hopelessness for all of those that lose their system. Their system. Emphasis on their system. Right? Manufactured authority. There's hopelessness for those people that lose their system. And we see the the destruction of physical value. Right? Bill Bill talked about all these precious, precious cargo. Right? Gold, silver, jewels, scarlet cloth, ivory, costly wood. Cattle, livestock, those things aren't bad. Oh, wait, human souls, slaves. The system of the world is going to appear to be no different than the system of Yahweh. But there will be a dark underbelly that is actually sort of just hiding in plain sight And when you hear that word slaves, did you think of like the Civil War or like the Israelites in Egypt? Because you shouldn't. Because there's more slaves now on planet Earth than there ever has been in history. In fact, this country is doing its darndest to grow the slave trade. God have mercy on us. Come quickly, please. In verse 11, they're weeping because no one's buying their stuff anymore. Well, there was a group of people that chose not to buy their stuff in the first place, and that's you and I. That's the church. That's the remnant. That's those that chose to take the mark of Yahweh instead of the mark of the beast. And so now they have this surplus that no one's going to buy. If we keep going to verse, just more mourning and more mourning as you keep going. In verse, verse 20, you get an interesting 
verse because they've, they've now thrown dust on their heads and they're weeping and crying out. But they say, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for, you, for God has given judgment for you against her. That's a weird thing to say, don't you think? They've lost everything. And they're telling you, the ones who conquered, the ones who did not bow to a lesser throne, the ones who did not take the mark of the beast, they're saying rejoice because God has taken vengeance for you. You see, even those that lost everything in this judgment will finally acknowledge that Yahweh, in fact, has dominion, right? And we know this because other places in the Bible say every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Verse 21 through 24 is such a beautiful passage. I want to spend a little more time on this. We'll be done with chapter 18 here. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. So that's, by the way, that's imagery. Okay, there isn't a giant asteroid that's going to fly into the ocean. Okay. He says, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And this is so beautiful, but so sad at the same time. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will, be, will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride, that's just celebrations in general, right, will be will be heard in you no more. For the merchants of the earth were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. A couple of things. God is saying, I gave you the prophets. I gave you my son. And then I gave you the global church. And through those mediums, I called to you and I offered you a chance to be in my family. I offered you a better option, an eternal option, but instead of taking that gift, you killed those people that I sent to you. And I was so patient with you. I was patient for thousands of years. I was patient with you. But now the grace is being removed. And judgment has come. You looked at the system of the beast, the dark trinity, and you said, there's no way it could be any better than that. But the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. What does the passage not say? The passage doesn't say that those things will never happen again. It just says those things won't happen anymore in Babylon. You better believe that all of those things described there are going to be happening in the, the new heaven and the new earth, the global Eden. 
There will be work. There will be worship, singing. There will be light, certainly, of more than a lamp, a lot more than a lamp. And there will be celebration. All of these things, everything, here's the point, guys. Everything that Babylon has to offer, everything is also offered by Yahweh. Everything. You have, but you have two ways to pursue it. Which one are you going to choose? The one that is holy, the one that is divinely inspired, the one that will last for eternity? The one given to you or the one that you make for yourself? So that's, that's chapter 18. Um, but before we leave chapter 18, let's spend a little time on like why Babylon? Why, why would we even, why would he, John, use that Babylon imagery? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, the fastest way I can do this is to say you have to think about Babylon's role in the First Testament because they were one of the primary agents of chaos against Yahweh and against his people in the Old Testament, right? They took the nation of Judah into captivity. They destroyed Solomon's temple, the place where God's manifest presence was. Yahweh's not going to take too kindly to that, right? But broadly speaking, it's referring, right, to all systems, governments, organizations, right, in opposition to Yahweh. And if we just, if we call it all the way back to Genesis 6, right, some of the sons of God, these lesser gods, rebelled against Yahweh and corrupted humanity in Genesis 6, starting in Genesis 6. They're certainly doing it now. And for all of human history, these lesser gods, these demonic powers have been setting up system after system and empire after empire that have tried to destroy the people of God. And in the First Testament, that was just the nation of Israel. But from the time of Jesus, see, Jesus showed up and threw a big curveball at the powers of darkness and said, actually, Israel isn't the only target. It's much bigger than that. It's anyone who follows me. And so from that point forward, it was Israel and the church which is really just one, because those of us that are Gentiles, that's every single person in this room, I think, right? You're grafted in, right, to the nation of Israel. And so in, in the interest of, in, in order to sort of back up what I said in the very beginning about calling some things demonic, um, so Planned Parenthood, uh, broadly speaking, most of Hollywood the WEF, the Canadian government, the U.S. government. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do these systems, I'm not talking about individual people, although most of them, I got questions. <laughs> do these systems, listen very carefully before you answer, but I do want you to answer. Do these systems appear to be interested in human flourishing, yes or no? Yes. Very good. Next question. Do they point to God as the source for that human flourishing? Thank you. What do they say? Only we can fix the brokenness in this world. Only we can provide for your flourishing. But are they causing any flourishing at all? Or are they doing what these merchants have done, which is enriching themselves? Literally, enriching themselves. Are they, in fact, destroying the earth? These green initiatives, Google uh, lithium and cobalt mines in third world countries. 
Okay? Are they in fact destroying the earth? Are they in fact spreading division and chaos everywhere they go? You see, they make themselves out to be gods. So really, this is a callback. Yes, it's a callback to Babylon, you know, like 586 B.C. when they destroyed the temple. But it's really a callback all the way to Babel, Genesis 11, where all of humanity built their own system, that tower up into the clouds. And they said, we are going to send, we are going to be just like the gods. And thought, they thought they could become gods, so God judged them. And he said, Israel's my family now. The rest of you are no longer in my family. And that was a partial judgment. And in Revelation, all the way in Revelation, from then, from Genesis 11 onward, we see the same thing. These lesser gods still trying to build Babel again and unite humanity against Yahweh. Meanwhile, Yahweh is trying to get his family back to Eden. The lesser gods are saying, we want to get back to Genesis 11, and Yahweh to get back to Genesis 1. I got to get back to Genesis 1. But in order to do that, the earth needs to be purified, and purification can only come through judgment this time. So with that, let's go back to Revelation 16. Revelation 16. These are the seven bold judgments. Before we jump into it, I need to say that these punishments, these are punishments for unbelievers, and it's for the purification of believers. And we can get into systems if you want. Sorry, we're not going to do that right now. But what I will say this is um, there isn't very good textual support for Christians having not being around for this stuff. Okay? Now, punishment of unbelievers, purification of believers. What am I saying? I do believe, we do believe at this church that Christians will be protected from these judgments. These judgments will not be poured out on them. But think about it this way. If you're around when society is crumbling and being crushed around you, it's not necessarily going to be like all fun and games. Okay? Will you be protected? Will Yahweh be punishing you? No. But a lot of people around you, a lot of systems will be punished around you. That's not so great. Okay? It's going to be tough. Okay, so the bold judgments are for the punishment of unbelievers and for the purification of believers. It's for your good. We're going to see a bunch of parallels with the plagues in Egypt. And we're going to see this reversal language, uh, this reversal action of those plagues. Because what's happening is one of my favorite verses ever in the Bible now, Revelation eleven eighteen. We're seeing the destruction of the destroyers of the earth. And these bold judgments match up with the trumpets, which match up with the seals. But where the trumpets were partial, one-third judgments, these are complete judgments. So let's, let's read a few of them. 16 verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. That's where I got that intro from. The painful sores are only for the people who take the mark of the beast and worship his image. They're not for everyone. Punishment of unbelievers, 
Purification of believers. Okay? One of the plagues in Egypt was painful sores. Okay? So, the reversal action, right? Those that take the mark of the beast, God marks them with sores. Reversal. Okay? Bulls 2 and 3 are very similar. The, uh, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that was in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Okay? So, what happened in Egypt? The Nile was turned into blood, and everything in the Nile died. But remember that the sea, the waters, that's a symbol for chaos. We've talked about this a bunch in this series. And the beast, right, one of the members of the Dark Trinity, he comes from the sea, so the beast is a chaos monster. Therefore, anyone that aligns with the beast, that takes the mark of the beast, can also be identified with the sea. So these living things that in the sea that died are not fish. They are people that took the mark of the beast. And you might be saying, I'm not sure I buy that. Let's keep reading. Verse 5 and 6 says, I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Reversal. Okay? Reversal. So, you have to read the whole set of verses for it to make sense. Those verses, these, these verses only make sense in context together if the living things in the sea are people. Because fish did not certainly eat all of the prophets and the saints. The ones that are being judged are the ones that chose to shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. No fish are dying. Now, I could said this. Chris, is that we, we, we said this a lot, right, like with, with, with this symbolism here, right? Is it possible that there will be people that get a bunch of sores and that all the oceans turn to blood and all the rivers? Like, yes, it's technically possible that those things will literally happen. In which case, fantastic. It's right here. But those things don't have to, those things can also be 100% symbolic, Right? Okay, so we're not necessarily looking for the ocean turning to blood. Okay? Symbolism. There's some additional, I've, I've mentioned Egypt a lot, but there's some additional Old Testament context for this, this bowl imagery and pouring things out that John is pulling from. I want to just put, let's put a couple verses up. Psalm 79. This one's really cool. So this is a psalm of Asaph. And it was written after Babylon came through and destroyed the temple. And the reason we know that is verse 1. O God, the nations have come into you, to your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Definitely written after 586 B.C. Verse 3. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. See that language? So the Babylonians came through and slaughtered a bunch of the Israelites, and there was no one to bury them. They poured out their blood like water. Verse 6, now the psalmist is asking God, 
God, please pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Verse 10, why should the nations say, where is their God? Remember the pride from Revelation 11? Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. John is, this Psalm 79 is being repurposed here and elsewhere throughout Revelation. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. This is another great one. Deuteronomy 32 is one of the best chapters in the Bible. Um, (laughs) Verse 43, I love this. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all people. No, all gods. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. There's the purification. So the Israelites understood this concept. John understood this concept of judgment being poured out on the earth as a reversal of the actions of agents of chaos that had been coming against the people of God for thousands of years. And they understood that It was for their purification, and it was for the purification of their land. Why? We'll get to that. Let's talk about the Nile River a little bit more, because this chaos imagery is too important to miss. So, in Egypt, the Nile represented chaos. In a very tangible way, because if you look at Egypt, if you Google Egypt, you're going to see sand everywhere. Like, it's desert, except for the Nile River Valley, right? Every year, that giant river, which represented chaos, would flood the valley on either side of the river, and it literally made the Egyptian civilization possible. Without that flooding of the the river valley, they would have no, no pyramids, no sphinx, none of that would have been there. They could barely survive, let alone build stuff like that. So every year, the river, which is chaos, would become what? More chaotic, even more chaotic as it overflowed the banks. But it made life possible. So of course the Egyptians would put their faith in the river, in chaos. They would align with chaos. Of course they would put the faith in their own system, their own gods, and and they would worship that instead of the one that created the medium by which they would have life and have civilization. And so you're saying, yeah, like, but that's, that's the Egyptians. Okay. Okay. I distinctly remember a couple years ago when our government wrote a bunch of stimulus checks for everyone. I believe there's a low-cost health care option from the government that's available. You see, throughout history, the forces of darkness have easily deceived Yahweh's most precious creation into bowing down before smaller, counterfeit thrones, offering destruction disguised 
as blessing. So the question before some of you today is which throne are you bowing to? And maybe you're not bowing to those thrones, but maybe all your eyes can't get off of it. And you need to look higher like Daniel did in Daniel 7. You need to look higher like John did. That's why God kept telling him, come up here, come up here, come up here, come up here. All the bold judgments, all the seals, all the the riders and the beast, come up here. Okay? Which throne are you focused on? Some of you are bowing to a throne right now and you need to repent. Some of you aren't bowing to a throne, but you're too focused on it. You're fixated on a smaller counterfeit throne and there's no hope and you're feeling depressed. Well, that's why, okay? And we need to get our eyes off of that and on to the highest throne, the most high God. We'll have a chance to do that at the end, I promise. Um, The fourth bull. The fourth angel poured out his bull on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So these first four bowls are natural disasters on the earth. At least that's the picture we get, the imagery we get. And there's a lot of different directions I can go with this, but the one that I think, that I think was, was coolest, at least for me, was, and I hope you find it cool too, that this is actually a judgment on the four elements from classical Greek theory. Earth, air, fire, and water. Okay? The prevailing worldview at the time in this Greco-Roman world was that these four elements were the fundamental building blocks, the very fabric of the universe. We know that scientifically isn't true anymore, right? First we discovered molecules, and then we discovered atoms, and then we said, well, the atoms made up of protons and neutrons, and then we found this electron that's even smaller, and then we broke those particles up. We keep finding smaller ones and smaller ones, right? Because we wanted, why? It's not nerdy stuff. It's, it's, because, it's, 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 a, it's a spiritual quest that physicists are on. They want to try to find the smallest particle because that is the building block of the universe. And I can assure you of this, there isn't one. There isn't one. There isn't a smallest particle. Yahweh is judging them in the first century the same way he's judging us now. You can say it's earth, air, fire, and water. You can say it's the Higgs boson or the God particle or whatever you want to call it. Those things are not the fabric of the universe. I am the fabric of the universe. I created those things. I am the fabric of the universe. The fifth bowl. Now the the target shifts because it's poured out on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. How ironic. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You sensing a common theme yet? The judgment is not causing anyone (laughs) to change their hearts. Now the bowl is directed, the judgment's directed at the source of evil in the physical and spiritual realm. Darkness, once again, one of the plagues in Egypt, right? When the, when the plague of darkness struck Egypt, you know what happened? You know what that was? 
that Pharaoh, who was a god, had a really hard time ruling his kingdom when they can't see anything, right? And we always like to think, oh, God is light and light, is, light casts out darkness. All so this time, darkness is obstructing darkness. Reversal. God says, okay, you want darkness? Fine. Here's darkness, a darkness that you aren't even capable of. I have more power over darkness than you have over darkness. And so I am going to strike you with such darkness that you cannot rule in your own backyard. And those that worship the beast do not repent. Instead, they cursed that which destroyed their idol because that's exactly what happens when an idol is destroyed. I think sometimes when we have idols in our lives destroyed, eventually we get around to repentance sometimes. But depending on the size of the idol in your life, it's exceedingly rare. When your idol gets destroyed, you curse that which destroys your idol. You don't all of a sudden in an instant wake up and say, oh, no, no, I want the more powerful thing now. Logically, that would be the response, right? This idol didn't protect me. Well, that must be the, you would think that's how the brain works. It does not. Evil always consumes itself. Only extreme pride would keep you in an insane position, an insane, an insane mindset like that. Well, we read about it in Revelation 18. I have made myself queen. No morning I will ever see. Right? The sixth bowl. Let's keep going. The sixth bowl. This is where it gets starting to get a little crazy. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet on Holy Trinity. There it is. Three unclean spirits like frogs, one of the plagues in Egypt. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So, again, clear reference to Babylon with the great river Euphrates. Um, it's symbolism. Again, we should not be waiting for the Euphrates River to actually dry up. Um, Mostly because back in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came over and destroyed Jerusalem, the river Euphrates didn't dry up then and their army still figured it out. So now that we have like planes and tanks and all that sort of stuff, they don't need a river to dry up to get anywhere. Okay? It's symbolism. The kings of the east, that's also Babylon because Babylon was east of Israel. Okay? But again, it's not Babylon literally. We're not talking about Iran. Please, we're not talking about Iraq. Okay, those in opposition to Yahweh. That's Babylon. If that happens to include Iran and Iraq, wonderful. Okay, it's not the point. And then there's this weird reference to like keeping your clothes on so that you don't walk around naked, which 
yeah, I suppose that makes sense. What that's really talking about, that's, that's an ancient Near Eastern uh, reference there where uh, conquering armies, if anyone survived the battle, they would actually strip them naked and parade them around the empire naked to shame them. Okay? So what Yahweh is saying is, hey, uh, don't be on the losing side. Don't be on the losing side. So then these, the unholy trinity, these demonic spirits, they go out into all the world. They deceive the kings of the earth, the nations of the earth, to join them for this final battle at Armageddon. We're not going to get into Armageddon. That's coming shortly in a couple weeks. So just hold on. Hold on for that. So that brings us to the seventh bowl. Now things start to shift. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple. Pop quiz. Which voice? Which voice? Yeah. The voice came out of the temple. That is God himself. The one seated on the throne, his son Jesus. Yes. What does the voice say? It is is done. It is finished. We've heard that before, haven't we? And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. That's throne room imagery, right? Throne room imagery. The great city, that's Babylon, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, no mountains were found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. Okay. Did all the islands run away? No. Did all the mountains get flattened? No. Okay, this is imagery. And when he's talking about Babylon, what's interesting, the, ba- the city of Babylon is split into three parts. Well, what makes up Babylon? Who leads Babylon? The unholy trinity. United, they are very powerful, right? And he's, God is coming in and breaking them up into pieces. Individually, yes, they will be destroyed as well. But that system, that united system, is being splintered apart. And then, of course, we get to the, the famous hailstones, 100 pounds each. Like everyone on earth knows about that verse in Revelation. Um, again, is it possible there will be 100-pound hailstones? Yes. Technically, it's possible. God is very capable of creating those. Uh, Really, what it is is just a callback to the plague of hail in Egypt. Um, And if you think about it this way, a 100-pound hailstone would be at least the size of my grill at home. And if it's falling from the sky, I apologize. I don't apologize for this at all. If it's falling from the sky, it's going to reach a speed of at least 220 miles an hour. 
So if something the size of a grill traveling that fast hits you, you are not going to be around after the fact to curse God for it. Okay? <laughs> it's, no one's going to survive the plague of hail if they're hit, right? It says they're falling on people. It doesn't say it's falling in the field and everybody's like, oh, please don't. No, it says it's falling on the people. And then they curse God, which is impossible. So there is such a thing as hyperbole. And that's what's operating here. It says they cursed God because the plague was so severe. Okay? So don't be... I mean, you should look out for 100-pound hailstones, definitely. <laughs> you definitely should. But I wouldn't be too worried about it if I was you. So that brings us to the end of the seven bowls. But why, why bowls? We're almost done. Why bowls? Bowls were used to pour out drink offerings. And this was very common for, for all, all, all religions back then including Yahweh. You can go back and read in the law. There's times when drink offerings would be poured out of bowls. Solomon had a hundred golden bowls made for drink offerings in the temple. But they were stolen by the Greeks in 167 BC. And so another set was made. The Romans took those in 70 AD. John would have known this. The Greeks and the Romans were under demonic power. They're referenced heavily in Daniel and Ezekiel. Okay? These were other agents of chaos, systems, empires that were, had risen up, that the demonic forces of the world had, had built up to come against the people of God. And they took these objects of worship from the place where God's presence was. They took the physical bowls from the temple. So in Revelation, God is using symbolic bowls to judge them. Reversal. These systems are being destroyed in the physical as a way of drawing out the forces of darkness from hiding. Because when you're a demonic spirit, you can do one of two things. You can make your presence known publicly. We see this throughout the Gospels in Jesus' ministry, right? These demonic spirits are possessing somebody, but they speak out and they say, Who are you, Son of God? Jesus of Nazareth, whatever. Please don't, right? You see this in the Gospels. They can do that, or they can build up these systems and hide in the background, behind them. You destroy the system, now there's nothing for them to hide behind. So what Jesus is doing is, in a way, he's destroying these systems that they created, and that's a source of pride for them. Now they're angry, and they rush out to Armageddon, the final battlefield, right? That's going to be a wonderful message. Please, please make sure you're here for that one. But they rush out to that final battlefield for what? Their complete destruction. In a way, Jesus is baiting them out into the open to attack him. He wants them to come out in the open, all of them, and attack him. And they're going to attempt to destroy all of creation. 
literally destroyed the whole earth. Because who made that? God did. But this isn't the first time Jesus has tricked the forces of darkness. He also tricked Satan and the sons of God into killing him on the cross. And that takes us to Revelation 15. Which is a flashback to the cross. Which is a flashback to Exodus. Let's read a little bit. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is, say it with me, finished. It's finished. This is the last time that the full wrath of God will be poured out. But it's not the only time. There was one other time. The first time the full wrath of God was poured out was at the cross. The last time those words were spoken, it is finished. finished. When this destruction sweeps through, the wrath of God will be complete in two ways. Only that which needs to be destroyed will be destroyed. And it will be complete, meaning it will be done for good. And all of this has to happen for us to to enable us to fully enter into his presence and his glory. You, you see that later in chapter 15 where you get this temple and tabernacle imagery, but where we don't have full access to it yet. And, and that's what this already but not yet tension is all about, right? Because we do have full access to the throne room of God. We do have access to Holy Spirit, to divine authority, to divine power. But we're still living here. And we can't yet see the kingdom of God in its fullest reality yet. But we will. See, after Jesus died on the cross, what came next? Holy Spirit. 15 verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. The sea again represents chaos, but it's both beneath his throne. Yahweh has so much control over chaos that you can't even tell it's there. In fact, it's not there. It's the complete absence of chaos. Glass is the complete absence of chaos. But there was... Someone else there. In fact, a lot of people were there. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name were standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God 
in their hands. I can't wait to get my hands on one of those instruments. I like my guitars, but I bet you that one's better. And they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You see, we started in chapter 18, which is the aftermath of the destruction of these systems against Yahweh. The systems of the beast and the world are destroyed. Why? Because the earth needed to be purified. And the only way purification comes is through judgment. That's chapter 16. And when that judgment is finished, we get the why, which is chapter 15. The people of God, the ones that conquered, sing the song of Moses. Why would they sing the song of Moses? It's a reference back to Exodus, right? They're singing like captives that have been set free. This is the final exodus. The final exodus. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. That's a huge phrase because the nations references in the Old Testament, at least in the First Testament, everyone in opposition to Yahweh. But through Jesus, even the Gentiles can be redeemed. So yes, there's Israel, but all nations will come and worship you. Not in defeat, in victory. Because God's family is made up of all nations. We have a tendency to bristle whenever God judges, right? It's tough to, to wrestle with that. But in verse 4, is God calling himself righteous and just? Because Babylon did. I sit as queen. No morning I will ever see. I am amazing. Does God then say, no, no, no. I am righteous and just. No, he doesn't. Although he is perfectly in, within his rights to do so. Who is calling him righteous and just? The people. We are. Why? Why would we do that? It's what I talked about in the very beginning. Those in opposition to Yahweh were destroyed and those loyal to him were saved. So we witnessed that one thing that every human can agree on. Evil has been judged. Righteousness has been blessed. So of course we would say Yahweh is righteous and just. The bulls had one more purpose in the first testament. They were used to pour out drink offerings and they were also used to take ash away, to take the guts, the insides of the animal that wasn't fit for sacrifice. They would use the bulls to carry that stuff out of sacred space. So with the bull judgment, the earth is being purified by removing the defilement pour out the judgment, take up all of the stuff that's not fit for sacred space and carry it out. 
priests would do this. Why? So that it can be made ready for the reoccupation of the Messiah and the Most High God. Because remember, the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was where God's manifest presence was. A tiny little piece of heaven on earth. But there was that thick curtain with the seraphim on it that warned the priests who were commanded by God to minister there. Hey, you can't come in here if you're unclean. You can't come in here if you're unclean. Well, the whole earth needs to be purified so that the whole earth can be the dwelling place of God, not just the little piece behind the curtain. And this was God's plan in the first place. You see, when all the way back in Genesis in Eden, God's manifest presence was not behind a curtain. It walked through the garden every day with Adam and Eve. And then God told them, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have a bunch of children, teach them what I have taught you. And there's going to be so many of you that this garden that I put you in is too small. So what I need you to do is fill the whole earth and subdue it. Make all of this planet like this place that I've put you in. And had that plan actually played out, God would have spent all of eternity from that moment forward walking through the garden with his entire family across this entire planet. In a global Eden, you might say. So here in Revelation, Jesus purifies those that are loyal to Yahweh. And as we will see in the coming chapters, he purifies the whole earth so that he can walk with his whole family in Eden again. Does that sound good to you? Yeah. Why don't you stay on your feet? And close your eyes. If you feel comfortable, maybe you can just put your hands open out to the Lord to receive from him. Some of you, some of you really resonated with that, those questions about the throne. What throne are you bowing to? You're not physically bowing down to it, but in your heart you are. And I would ask that you would consider coming forward and physically bowing down before the Lord in repentance. There's something that happens in your spirit when your body moves first. Because we are body, soul, and spirit, and, and, and those things are united. And sometimes you have to make a move physically first before something spiritually can happen. So if you're bowing before a counterfeit throne, I'm just, I would just lovingly ask you to come bow before the Lord in repentance. 
maybe you're not bowing before a throne, but your eyes are fixed on everything that's going on. Smaller counterfeit thrones, and they're constantly bombarding you with everything that is hopeless in this world. Everything that's going on with Israel and Hamas and Ukraine and the economy and inflation and China and gender ideology and and racism and all of this stuff. And you're so angry at everyone that you know is causing all of that that you can't get your eyes past that throne to the one that's higher. So you're not bowing to it, but you're fixated on it. And that anger and bitterness inside you is just killing you. And you know it and you're tired of that and you want to just get it out. Well, the Lord has a bowl for you today that you can take that stuff out and put it in and he'll take it away to make room for sacred space. You know, when we talk about trials and tribulations and these these judgments, the word that often comes into our head is endurance, and endurance is a beautiful word. It's one that we need. It's an idea that we have to have. We should aspire to endure through all of this. If that is what God has for us, to endure through all of this stuff in Revelation, then yes, we want endurance. But the problem with that word is that endurance tends to make us downshift to this survival mode. I just got to survive. And survive you shall. Survive you must. God wants you to survive too. But when you slip into survival mode, you stop operating in the fullness of what the Lord has for you because he's not interested just in your survival. What he's really after is the revival of your heart. The revival of your heart. And so there are some of you in this, this, this room, maybe you don't have a throne issue, but you're just, you're just, you're seeing all the hopelessness. You've got it properly anchored in your perspective, but but you have slipped into this survival mode. And you look at the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life and you're say, you're saying, I I can't I can't do this anymore. How in the world am I gonna serve just stay in survival mode for the next several decades? I can't do it. good news is is that that's not what the Lord has for you. The Lord has a revival in your heart gift for you. Because these judgments, this chaos in the world that is being allowed for a time is for your purification. And purification implies that you are better on the other side of it than when you started. So so if we can step, step into these these cycles of purification, you will begin to feel cycles of revival in your heart. You will not be stagnated in survival mode.
so right now, Jesus, we ask that you would do what only you can do. We want revival. We want a bunch of people to be healed. We want want a bunch of people to be saved. We want all the things that look like a huge revival. We ask for that, God. We beg for that. But we also recognize and we declare that that sort of stuff doesn't really happen until the hearts are revived first. So God, we ask right now in this moment that you would wash over us with a spirit of revival of the heart, that you would break us out of survival mode and into revival, that you would show up in glory so that we would get our eyes off of some smaller counterfeit throne and onto the most high God, that is you, on the most high throne.